please the court. I represent Mason Murphy. This is a case here on a motion to dismiss granted by the district court. It is a civil rights case. My client uh, is peacefully walking on a rural road. He was on the wrong side of the road. We acknowledge that. There's a Missouri statute, 30405, says you have to walk against traffic. He was walking with traffic. And Officer Schmidt rolled up on him and said, give me your name. And my client said, no. A quite elaborate argument ensued, went on for nine minutes. Finally, my client was placed under arrest. Uh, and he sues now for retaliation for exercise of his First Amendment rights. The uh, first three elements of that are well established. The first element is a protected action by the uh, plaintiff, in this case, exercising his speech to say, I won't say my name. Adverse action, that's an easy one, the arrest. Uh, three is a little more complicated, motivation, uh, retaliatory animus, a but-for test, but we'll, I'm sure get into that in more detail later. And the last element really is where this case lives and breathes. That is the There was no probable cause for the arrest. So here we go to Atwater, which says that if an uh, officer has any reason to arrest a subject, if, in other words, the subject has broken some law, that, that the subject uh, can be arrested and there's no retaliation. Uh, now we come to the Neves case, which was decided in 2019. These events occurred in 2021 afterward. One of the things about some of the cases are that there, there's a lot of crazy, raucous behavior, and the Neves case uh, is certainly a good example of that. We are at the Arctic Man Festival in Alaska, and there are lots of people, crazy and drunk, and uh, an officer comes up to one group and says, hey, your, your keg of beer is accessible to juveniles. We have to, we have to remove that. And, it's, and then Mr. Neves approaches and says, hey, don't listen to those cops. They're a bunch of schmucks and things like that. And then the critical thing that happens is that they scuffle a little bit. And Mr. Neves is arrested. He sues and says, oh, retaliation because I challenged the police. And the court said, no, there's probable cause because you scuffled with the officer. It's a resisting arrest or it's assault, whatever you want to call it. It's, this, is, this is actually an easy case. Now we come to the heart of this case, which is the court writes an exception. And the exception is, the example they give is jaywalking. So if there's a person protesting the police while jaywalking and the officer arrests the person for jaywalking, then it's, uh, even though there's probable cause because jaywalking is against the law, it is mostly, I think the word is typical, that the officer exercises discretion not to arrest that person for that, for any person for that offense, and therefore uh, the retaliation claim goes forward. I suggest to this court, this is the heart of my argument, that my case, Mr. Murphy's matter, is directly within that exception. And the reason is that my client, what he did wrong, 
once he walked on the wrong side of the road, which I suggest in this case it was dark, it was late, it was rural, he didn't probably pay any attention to which side he was on. And I think the officer didn't really know the law either. I don't know if you've watched the uh, video, but it's quite startling. Counsel, let me ask you this. The, sure. The government asserts that the Neves exception is dicta. What's your response to that? Well, I discussed that in my brief, Your Honor, and uh, the Eighth Circuit has written that, uh, and other circuits as well, that, that this court has to follow dicta of the Supreme Court if it, I mean, it doesn't absolutely have to, I guess, but, but if it doesn't, there are going to be um, inconsistent results around the circuits. So that's, that's really my response to that. I mean, let's, let's imagine that the... So are you, are you saying it's dicta, dicta or it's not dicta? Oh, it's dicta. There's no question it's dicta, sir. I agree with that. Um, but let's imagine that the justices are back in conference thinking about the case, and to me, what they're worried about is the Mason Murphy scenario. That's their concern. I mean, I wish they'd said walking on the wrong side of the road instead of jaywalking, but they said jaywalking. Let me, let me ask for a little clarification. Are you saying that the jaywalking exception is dicta or that the exception to the no probable cause rule is dicta? Um, I think that it's, it's, it's both dicta, Your Honor. I would can agree with that because the case itself, there was probable cause, and the court confirmed. I, mean, I, hope, I hope I don't disagree in this. Judge Malloy, but I, I think that this whole section of the opinion in Neves on the jaywalking says, okay, we're, 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 we're clarifying this, there has to be probable cause, but there's going to be cases. There's going to be cases. Let me quote from Justice Gorsuch. Uh, he did a concurrence in Neves. He said, nothing in our precedent, let alone logic, suggests that causation is always unprovable just because the officer had probable cause to arrest. So they were, really, they were really thinking it through in this case, and they wanted to make sure that situations like jaywalking, like walking, walking on the right, wrong side of the road, would still be coming forth to have justice for subjects whose constitutional rights were violated. Counsel, would you address the, the issue of whether or not this was a lawful order more specifically? Sure. And, and because I think it relates to the, the district court's opinion basically found that there was a violation of Missouri statutes here. Yeah. Um, so I think that goes to the Heibel case. And I will confess to you, I, I'm living on exceptions here. I've got two exceptions. I've got the Neves exception and now the Heibel exception. So let me just read you from Heibel. Uh, Petitioner's concerns are met by the requirement, and Heibel 2004 or something, if that's approximately right, um, are met uh, by the requirement that a Terry stop, and this is a Terry stop under an ob objective standard, he was on the wrong side of the road, reasonable suspicion. Uh, a Terry stop must be justified and reasonably related in scope to the circumstances which justify the initial stop. That's longstanding, clear law. Under these principles, an officer may not arrest a suspect for failure to identify himself if the request for identification is not reasonably related to the circumstances justifying the stop. Now, let me detail that a little bit. In the Heibel case, we're down in Nevada. There's a phone call for an assault with a description of a car. The officer sees a guy standing next to a car that meets the description of the car. He goes over, he says, hey, who are you? I'm not telling you. So it goes on from there, the argument, the arrest, and the critical fact 
is that in that case, the officer didn't know who had committed the assault. They were looking for the perp. So identification of the person standing next to the matching car, well, he wasn't the guy, but that's not important. The critical thing is that the officer needed to ID the perp. In this case, Mr. Murphy was ID'd, not his identity, but the person who had committed it was clear because he was standing right in front of him when it happened. So that's the difference. Now, there's other issues about what is called other evasive behavior. So there's a beg the question issue with refusing to identify yourself. Ah, you didn't identify yourself, but you didn't have any duty to identify yourself. I think under the Hybel exception, there is no duty to identify himself because it's in the case. The exception is when, and there's no statute in Missouri requiring you to do it, which was present in Nevada. Well, doesn't lawful order arguably, in other words, if the officer orders you to identify yourself, doesn't that arguably fall within the statute? Assuming, let's say we had a question of identity. In other words, that there was a report that someone had just robbed a liquor store, drive up, walk behind him. He's walking on the wrong side of the road. You go up and ask to identify. Does the statute work in that context? I'm sorry, sir, which statute? Under Hybel's. I'm talking about 300.080. In other words, the lawful order. Okay, all right. I didn't know whether you were that or on the wrong side of the statute. Because under Hybel's, you need a state statute, right? And then you need reasonably related to the investigatory stop, is my understanding. Okay, so I have a different understanding of the statute at issue in Hybel. In Hybel, they said, in Nevada, there is a statute that says a subject in a Terry stop must identify himself. There is no such statute in Missouri. There's a critical distinction, I think. Further, in this case, if it's a lawful order, it has to be consistent with Hybel. And I'm suggesting that under the Hybel exception, it's not a lawful order. A subject doesn't have to follow an unlawful order, only a lawful order. There's also this whole issue of the Wesby case, where that's a Supreme Court case from 2018. The officers come up to this wild party. The place is a mess, and there's nudity, drug use. They get somebody on the phone who claims to be the landlord and admits she isn't. And they said, oh, that's enough evasive behavior. That's enough. But I am suggesting to this court, my client didn't stumble. The officer admitted that there was no resisting. He admitted he wasn't, quote, on something. And if you watch the video, the guy's stone cold sober. And that's what we allege. And the video is part of the complaint, because it's referenced. So my assertion is that the evasive behavior simply doesn't get, in this case, under that case law, to where it needs to be for Officer Schmidt to arrest Mr. Schmidt. Mr. Murphy, sorry. What about the clearly established problem? Okay. Is that, is there enough ambiguity in Highball and these other cases to say that it wasn't clearly established that he could ask for his identification, assuming it was only a Terry stop? Yes, sir. 
and that's why I read you directly from Heibel. Uh, I mean, Heibel says, under these principles, an officer may not arrest a suspect for failure to identify himself if the request for identification is not reasonably related to the circumstances. I mean, I, that's well, pretty who, strong. Who, who makes the decision as to what's reasonably related? Um, sure. And, and, and what, you know, we talk a lot about in qualified immunity, it can't be at a generalized level. It has to be some specificity. Uh, how, how do we make that determination? Or who makes that determination what's reasonably related? Well, I think it's, it's I, I view qualified immunity as sort of a large cloud of complexity. Uh, but um, I think that you have to look at where the case falls on the continuum. In other words, is it a way at one end or way at the other? In this case, this idea that the officer had the, had the subject, Mr. Murphy, right in front of him, tells him that identification of who did it is not part of his investigation. He knows who did it. It's the human being right in front of him. Mr. Schock, uh, your rebuttal time has started. If you'd like I, to reserve. I see that. I'll stop. Thank you so much. Mr. Jordan. Please the court. I am Wayne Jordan here on behalf of Appley Officer Michael Schmidt, requesting this court uphold the district court's granting his motion to dismiss appellant's retaliatory arrest claim. The heart of the matter today is that appellant fails to plead that Officer Schmidt violated any clearly established right as required by the case law to overcome the qualified immunity protections. As we just heard, that there uh, that he does have the burden of proof today in establishing that the right that um, his client had, um, sorry, that the right that Mr. that Officer Schmidt violated was clearly established. When we look at this in the case law, clearly established as directed by Westby, says that to be clearly established, a legal principle must have the sufficiently clear foundation by then existing precedent. The rule must be settled law which means that it is controlled by, it is directed by controlling authority and that there is some robust case law to understand this. How about the Supreme Court of the United States? Doesn't your argument require us to ignore the Neves decision? I don't believe so, Your Honor. When we look at the Neves exception, it is, as you just admitted, it is dicta. It is something that is suggested. It is a hypothetical and that it is not the controlling case. The controlling facts of the matter in Nivens would actually favor Officer Schmidt. There is some low-level conduct that is occurring. There is then, after the officer then pursues that conduct, there is some, we then get into the protected, um, the protected right that the appellant alleges, and that the court then found that, no, they are arresting them based on the actual criminal conduct and that the rest of that of ancillary. When we look at the protected conduct that is carved out as what we would consider this narrow exception, the fact pattern would not even direct the circumstances here in this case. Well, well is it fair to say the arrest was based on the failure to identify, not the initial stop? I mean, that seems fairly clear from the record, right? And in other words, not from him walking on the wrong side of the road. It looks like when you look at the record, the arrest was squarely based on the failure to identify you. Is that the way you view it? I mean, that's the way I think the district court viewed it. 
And I would not disagree with the district court in that assessment that there is at least the, I would say the primary focus here is that it's the failure to uh, comply with a lawful order. Not, and that does incorporate not in identifying himself. But there is, when we look at the lawful order and the uh, initial crime that is committed, and we will again admit that walking on the wrong side of the road is why the officer stopped him. It is a lower level crime, but that is what instigated the fact pattern here. When taking those together, Westby is controlling on that, Your Honor, and that the evasive procedures that are the evasive tactics that Mr. Murphy used coupled together with the initial um, illegal conduct does give rise to a common sense or a common law inference that some other criminal activity is going on. As appellant cites to the YouTube video, I believe that it's, it is part of the record and uh, many have reviewed it at this point, that there is at least some suggestion that something else is going on, that other criminal activity is at least at the bare minimum. You seem to be asserting that the refusal to identify oneself is, creates probable cause for an arrest. Does the case law support that? Coupled with the totality of circumstances, Your Honor, and I would not say that just simply it does give rise to this probable cause. Shepard versus Ryanberger would dispel that, but it also is not clearly an unlawful act. And that is what appellant must show, is that the conduct that Officer Schmidt engaged in is clearly unlawful so that every reasonable officer would know that his actions are unlawful, and that is the standard to defeat qualified immunity protections. Counsel, what troubles me about this case is that we are at the pleading stage. This is not summary judgment. We're under a plausibility standard here. Your Honor, um, the case law on that would I would direct towards Hess, um, which says that um, again, the, they do have the burden to show that there is going to be something. It's not going to just be merely consistent with um, that they have the, the right to a cause of action. They must at least be able to meet all of the elements. And as we do, um, as appellant agrees, the heart of the issue today is going to be um, part four for pleading retaliatory arrest and part three that he fails to even do that. And when you look at the case law, I mean, there really is. Well, what's, he, what's he missing? What's, what is, uh, he is missing the fourth element for retaliatory arrest that he lacked probable cause or argued probable cause. And that. So, the, so you're asking us to ignore the Nibs case then? I'm not uh, asking to ignore the Nibbins exception or the dicta in Nibbins that carves out some very narrow exception. The argument here is that it still doesn't apply. The Nibbins exception. He just has to plead a plausible claim. Correct, Your Honor, and that in the Nivens exception, it is going to be heavily fact-intensive for what the court is considering, that someone is first engaging in a protected activity such as their First Amendment rights, and then after this, subsequently, they are arrested for something low-level as jaywalking. As Appellant argues and that the Nivens exception applies, he really wants to misdirect the court that Walking on the same side of the road is the same as jaywalking. That's not where the exception comes in. It comes into the factual scenarios, and he pleads himself out of court. So, so going back to that issue, what specific facts here lead to probable cause? The specific facts here that lead to probable cause, first, and this is from his petition and the brief, 
that while on duty, Officer Schmidt observed uh, Murphy walking on the wrong side of the road at night or partial darkness. And then but, but, but setting that aside, I mean, I, I think you conceded earlier the arrest is basically based on the interaction that happens after the initial encounter. The failure to identify, and I think you said that the totality of circumstances would lead an officer to suspect something else was going on. So what specifically, in addition to the failure to identify, would lead a reasonable officer to be suspicious here to the level of probable cause? If I'm understanding you correctly, Your Honor, then it is the, the facts that get towards the, that give rise to even having the failure to identify or giving that lawful arrest, because we, we can see that they are the same, start with the entire reason why he stopped him, why he pulled him over. He didn't just pull him over because he thought that he was exercising some protected right. And be, because it, he is not pulling him over for exercising a protected right, that is the heart of why the Nivens exception cannot apply here. It is fact intensive. And so the only reason that he gives him this, this um, he even gives him the lawful order, which again, they get out of that. We are having to do mental loop, like mental gymnastics to try and figure out, is this an unlawful order? That's the heart of the, the matter today, Your Honor. He did not clearly give him an unlawful order. He did not clearly just come after Mr. Murphy for exercising some protected right as suggested in Nivens. He didn't know who he was. He saw someone violating the law, again, low level, but violate, like committing a crime, and he just started to try and figure things out. And figuring those things out of what is the totality of going on here, he gives him that lawful order. And do you think we can decide that at the pleading stage given the inferences that we have to make? I do, Your Honor. And that even with the inferences that would be required to be drawn in the appellant's favor, the limited, narrow, minuscule exceptions that he even cites to do not factually lead us towards pushing into the exceptions. And, and what is still clear at the pleading stage when assessing whether or not qualified immunity should be established, what the court would have to decide here is that every officer across and every reasonable officer would have to know of this very limited exception, when it would apply, how it should be used, and that it uh, and that it would direct their police conduct, which is just not the case. We're only citing to one case here, Your Honor. There is not the robust consensus of the but case it's law. It's my understanding that both the Third and the Sixth Circuits have said it's not dicta. And you're, are you asking us to disagree with them? Um, as far as... The Neves, the Neves exception. And the Neves exception, I would... This circuit has never held that it has been anything other than dicta. Well, we've never held anything. That is correct, Your Honor, and that I believe is exactly what is going into the argument here, is that even if it is not just simply dicta, it is not so well known that every officer would know Well, the Supreme Court of the United States is, I mean, we have to follow what they say. And if we follow what they say on the controlling facts of the case that Nivens actually applied to, it would direct that the, the court would still have to uphold the, um, that the qualified immunity protections here in this case were accepted. Again, not just like getting away from dicta. Dicta is, let's say, column A of the issue here. In column B, the facts still do not line up with what the Supreme Court is considering in Nivens. And when we start looking towards um, what is actually in this case, 
he still he never gets to the point where he can plead that the qualified immunity and protections should not apply. Even at the pleading stage, Your Honor. And with that, if there are no further questions, I will briefly conclude that when we look at the case today, because he does not state a claim upon relief can be granted, even from the pleading stage, drawing all reasonable inferences, there is no basis to overcome the qualified immunity protections, and we respectfully ask this court to uphold the motion to dismiss. Thank you, Your Honors. Mr. Shaw, you've got almost four minutes left. Oh, I'm sorry, minute 40. just have three quick things to say. Uh, the first is uh, I really don't see anything else going on. I mean, if the officer is in endless discussions with his fellow officers and he makes a phone call from the Sally Port, hey, we, it's not clear who he's talking to, what can I charge him with? <laughs> uh, it's, it's absurd. He, he calls my client horrible names. Uh, I'm not going to say the words. I'm sure you've read them. Uh, it would degrade the court. Um, but there was nothing. No stumbling. Was he, was he on something? No. And uh, so they're talking about this in the tape. The next thing is uh, addressing this concern that there's no case interpreting the Heibel exception. I suggest to this court that the Heibel ex exception is completely clear. If the failure, an officer may not arrest a suspect for failure to identify himself if the request for identification is not reasonably related. So that, that's, that's it. That's what we have. The gentleman's right in front of him. Uh, it's so obvious. There's a, there's a whole obvious case uh, uh, line in QI. I, I guess I was educated here during uh, my opponent's argument that the third and sixth say it's not dicta. Um, I didn't see those cases, but I will tell you that from, it kind of looks like dicta to me, but if you don't think it's dicta, I'm all for it. But it doesn't matter because this court follows the Supreme Court. And as I say, you can imagine them up there thinking about the implications of this very matter, which would lead to arbitrary and erratic Arrests and conviction as is described in the city mission case. I'm out of time. If there are thank more you. questions, thank you so much for your time. I thank you. Mr. Jordan and Mr. Schock, we appreciate your arguments and the case is submitted.